Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stuart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Maria Snegovaya, and you're listening to Russian Roulette. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Catherine Belton. Catherine is an international investigative reporter at The Washington Post reporting on Russia. From 2007 to 2013, Catherine worked as the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times, and she also worked for as a legal correspondent for the paper as well. Uh, she has written for the Moscow Times, Business Week, and Reuters. In 2009, she was shortlisted for the British Press Awards Business and Finance Journalist of the Year Prize. And last but not least, Catherine is the author of the acclaimed book, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. It was a New York Times Critics Book of 2020 and a Book of the Year for the Times, The Economist and The Financial Times. It's really an outstanding book. And so we'll talk somewhat about the, the book or a lot of the themes that, that Catherine wrote about in the book. But we'll also talk about one of the, some of the some of Catherine's uh, recent reporting. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on on. Russian roulette. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I want to maybe start with a recent story that you wrote uh, for the Washington Post, looking at Russian efforts to perhaps interfere in French politics. There's lots of elections happening in 2024 across the world. But one place that I think is per perhaps particularly prone to election interference is the European parliamentary elections that are going to happen in June. And I was wondering, maybe you could sort of talk a little bit about or summarize uh, what some of your reporting showed you about Russian efforts uh, in France in particular? Um, I think it's very clear that the Kremlin is is gearing up now ahead of this uh, big election year this, this year. Like you mentioned, there's the European parliamentary elections in June. Um, Jamie Rubin, uh, the head of the U.S. State Department's Office of Disinformation, uh, I think said last week that they believe that Russia is preparing major disinformation campaigns for this year for the elections to try and undermine European unity on support for Ukraine. And I guess uh, my reporting uh, covers sort of documents and, and Kremlin opera operations, which kind of predate this year. I mean, the, the documents that I was able to get access to, um, there were some Kremlin documents showing that there's basically a, a cell of political strategists uh, working for the Kremlin, running troll farms, uh, operating mostly now through social media, because uh, of course, Russia today is is now banned in Europe, the main prop Kremlin propaganda arms. But essentially, they're seeking to propagate uh, messaging, which undermines uh, support in France for Ukraine, talking about how, uh, you know, sanctions against Russia deepening, leading France into a deep social and economic crisis, that the US economy is benefiting from all this when the French economy is withering. And also, of course, seeking to kind of drive the point home that France has now donated so many weapons to uh, Ukraine doesn't have enough weaponry left to defend itself, a view that has been echoed by quite a few senior former generals from the French military and the military intelligence services who have been echoing many of the Kremlin talking points and very often hold quite radically pro-Kremlin views. 
Right. I think as the Kremlin sort of looks for soft spots in European support, I mean, in France, you have Marie Le Pen polling doing quite well in the polls, Macron being somewhat unpopular, and the sense that there's there's a, a weak point there. I guess one question for you is, do you think that the efforts on disinformation will bear as much fruit for the Kremlin as perhaps they did in the previous decade in 2016 and also Russian interference in, in the 2017 election? Because haven't we become somewhat aware of Russian tactics? Uh, so do you think we've developed a degree of resilience or are the Russians figuring out ways to influence us in new ways? I think they are. And as you mentioned, in, in France, they still have a very uh, persuasive and popular channel uh, by Marine Le Pen. Uh, she Her party is, is set to do very well in the European parliamentary elections. It's currently polling at 38%, eight percentage points ahead of Macron's party. You know, they've had pretty steady uh, support for the European parliamentary elections, so they could really turn things around. Since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they've sought somewhat to distance themselves uh, from uh, Russia a little more. They have condemned Russia's aggression there, but crucially, national rally on many key votes on Ukraine and support for Ukraine in the French parliament. They've either abstained or voted against and you still see Marine Le Pen regularly criticizing the sanctions regime and so on. I think she's very much uh, determined now to have a more respectable face, having been very badly tarnished in previous elections for accepting money, uh, a big eight, eight, nine million euro uh, loan directly from a Russian bank in the 2014 elections and another of more mysterious origin from an Abu Dhabi financial institution. So she and I think in the last uh, elections in 2022, Macron really rubbed that home. He basically said, well, when you go and see Putin, you're essentially meeting your banker. You know, and I think ever since then, you know, she's been trying a bit harder to distance herself. But uh, observers there are very much aware that were she to come to power in France, that could rapidly change. And of course, you've got uh, political operators like one former national rally MEP, who I was profiling a bit for this uh, previous story, this guy called Jean-Luc Schaffhauser, who actually organized uh, these loans from Marine Le Pen. And he still has deep contacts right across Russia's far right, happens to rent out part of his house in Strasbourg to Russia's number two diplomat in Paris, uh, a guy called Ilya Subotin. So he's re receiving regular funding and support uh, almost directly from the Russian embassy. And he was talking about the plans uh, he was hatching to basically put together a list of far-right MPs ahead of the European parliamentary elections that would basically prepare to promote more pro-Russian lines that would uh, seek to end Western weapons supplies to Ukraine. So the disinformation campaigns that Russia engages in, they can, you know, they have many avenues. And I was talking to uh, Thomas Gourmard, who is the head of uh, a big international affairs institute in Paris. And he was saying that the Russian accounts right now in France have become sort of increasingly visible. And these are really despite efforts across Europe to root out and kind of expose these type of operations. We know that since the Russian invasion uh Russia Today and Sputnik are banned. So this most immediate 
propaganda outlet is now closed down, but Russia uh, propaganda is still pervasive on social media. France in particular set up its own watchdog, an outlet called uh, Viginum, which has tried to expose some of the more obvious Russian operations. There was one which was called uh, Doppelganger, because you had Russians uh, basically cloning the media of, cloning the pages of well-known media like Le Monde and ultimately, eventually, even the French foreign ministry sort of running fake news, the basically depicting the Ukrainian government as Nazi regime or, or sort of railing against sanctions and the deliberating effect it was having on the French economy. And this French uh, state digital watchdog did uh, manage to kind of, uh, with the help of uh, research by Meta, managed to expose that this was essentially a Russian disinformation operation. They found like IP addresses and metadata, which showed that these uh, sites were being run out of Russia and that they were also being hosted by a network called Recent Reliable News, which is also a known Russian front. This Recent Reliable News was being used to amplify some of the messaging. So yeah, I think we have gotten better exposing some of this stuff, but uh, the Russians have also you know, gotten good themselves finding ways around our restrictions, as we've seen so clearly in how they operate to bypass Western sanctions. So, yeah, I guess it's always a question of playing playing catch up, playing whack-a-mole, because, you know, you close down one avenue and then Russians will, will find another. On that note, honestly, I'm almost stunned, even if I probably shouldn't, given that I've studied populism for almost a decade by now as to how malleable and flexible they are in the messaging. At first, when uh, the war restarted, uh, shall we say in 2022, many of the populist leaders, Matteo Salvini's Lega and Giorgio Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia, actually seem to have shifted away from uh, this embrace or affinity for Russia and Putin in particular. And so the hope was that finally this bromance is over. But it seems like things are unfortunately going back to where they used to be. Is there like fundamentally certain extremely um, incredibly attractive about Putin wants to offer, offer to this group? Maybe it's like their anti-transatlantic alliance orientation. Or do you see that more as um, temporary uh, sort of confluence of interest uh, because of the maybe certain economic problems that they're facing. I, um, I'm asking also because uh, it seems that depending on which messages uh, the Russian propaganda is selling in Europe, it can be less or more uh, successful when at the start of the war uh, they tried to sell more uh, like Russian version of the war. It did not stick. But now that they are focusing more attention on domestic troubles in European societies, economic troubles, they seem to be more successful. Is that, the, is that why? Is that because the economic situation in Europe is not so good and that gives advantage to these populist leaders again to pick up this agenda? Yeah, I think we can. I've seen from uh, some of the documents that the Kremlin political strategists are essentially monitoring all the time, very closely changing political and economic winds in these European countries. They focus particularly on France, Germany and Italy, because these are seen as countries that are most vulnerable to uh, Russian propaganda and that there are kind of longer, deep standing ties between factions of the establishment and the Russian regime. I think, you know, I guess it, it depends for each group. Um, we know for Le Pen that having accepted 
that loan in 2014, though she now says it's it's paid back, it did cement some quite uh, deep links. And, you know, she kind of penciled into the founding charter of National Front, as it was then called, but now it's called National Rally, that France is seeking kind of a more independent status outside of US hegemony, something that's music to uh, kind of Putin's ears. And that's kind of a, a confluence of interest things. But I also think that perhaps Marine Le Pen might not have thought of that for herself. I mean, of course, this is a long-standing vein of, of French politics, going back to Charles de Gaulle when he sought to forge a closer alliance with the then Soviet Union, uh, so as to chart a more independent path for France outside of, of US influence. So uh, Russia can basically manipulate and use that because there's a big part of the French establishment and elite which uh, sees itself or wants France to be a great power in its own right and wants to return to those roots. So I think France is that part of the equation. This is what Russia has to offer them. Uh, for Italy, uh, again, it, it's and also when you speak to MPs from uh, AFD, who I was speaking to earlier last year, because I was also working on Russian influence operations in Germany, and they very much also kind of buy into this uh, kind of agenda of having greater sovereignty outside of what they see as Europe being under the kind of influence and power of, of the US. They want sovereignty for their own country. And of course, you know, this plays to their own agenda, but the Kremlin is, is very adept at sort of massaging their egos and the egos of the uh, electorate. And so these can be used as, as kind of key issues for them. And I guess we saw Alice Weidel, the head of the AFD, in Germany, she recently gave an, F, an interview to the FT in which she's still calling for Germany to exit the EU, despite Britain's sorry experiment with that story. I mean, so these are issues that still resonate uh, with these type of parties. And of course, yeah, and I think the Kremlin is, is watching all the time, looking for the, the weak points uh, in Europe. And unfortunately, now there are many because we have issues with migration, issues with the economy. I think inflation is, is now lessening. So perhaps that's a bullet dodged. Um, but I think most recently, of course, they've been focused on uh, the increasing tension over the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict. And, uh, you know, we saw direct Russian efforts to interfere by the French authorities called this uh, Moldovan couple, they believed were acting on the orders of a pro-Russian businessmen who were painting stars of David across the streets of Paris, hoping to inflame tensions between the Muslim and Jewish communities. And so this is something that they really can do. And I guess we've, we've you know, and also Russia is now deepening its ties with Iran. So, you know, we don't know, you know, what support they're giving to some of the pro-Palestinian protests. And they, I think they just basically see an awful lot of opportunity now in the West. And also because of the overall change in the atmosphere towards continued Western support for Ukraine, they're seeing cracks in the alliance with Hungary and Slovakia becoming much more active in kind of trying to reject this in Europe. And of course, in the US with the US uh, Congress completely stymied, stymied by all the political infighting. 
Yes, yeah, certainly a very unfortunate moment, uh, mm. two years into this horrible war. Mm. Uh, as a follow-up on that, Catherine, uh, recently Krista Grozev, an investigator from the Inside mm. and Valenki, gave an interview saying that they also, in addition, on top of everything you listed, also exposed a very active network of Russian spies that is penetrating everywhere, including into the Russian diaspora groups uh, that obviously much larger these days in Europe, in the West more broadly. Do you know anything of, about it? Is Kremlin also intensifying its effort at maybe penetrating some of the important groups in order to perhaps push forward its agenda? Yeah, I think this is something that we have to watch very carefully. I mean, I think in the first year of the war, Western governments really took great efforts. Uh, they began expelling Russian diplomats as they thought one way of reducing Russian influence and espionage operations and one way of making them more difficult. But of course, again, Russia adapts and this is certainly not the only way it can conduct espionage through diplomats acting under official cover. They have many, many other channels, whether this be through Russian businessmen or, as you say, agents within Russian diasporas or Chechen diasporas. There was uh, the, the French government uh, was also, you know, Know, very worried about elements within the Chechen diaspora re recently, particularly over the Israel-Hamas conflict. And we've seen the French interior minister basically announce that he's seeking to expel 39 Chechens from France and that he's talking to Russia about this because he's worried over the radicalization. And from what I understand from the background, that there is concern that elements within the Chechen diaspora are, can be manipulated by the, by the Chechen authorities or by the Kremlin because they have relatives in Chechnya who can be kidnapped or pressured or so on. And I, I guess it goes back to, you know, the age old adage that anyone, any Russian national who still has business interests or relatives in Russia is vulnerable to blackmail from the Kremlin and can be forced into acting as an agent of influence for the Kremlin. It strikes me that one of the problems, quote unquote, for, for European politics is that in Europe, there are rules for running political campaigns. Most countries have pretty tight spending standards. There's money is limited in European politics. There's tighter regulations. And while I think that's sort of beneficial from the no holds barred uh, landscape of, of U.S. politics, it means that it doesn't take a lot to in some ways distort the political landscape, and especially in terms of funding. And so I guess there's, you know, a question of how much we know and don't know, right? So there's been exposure of Mario Penn's loans, but I think there is this sort of bigger question of how much money there is actually being funneled into European politics. There's, I think four years ago, right before the European elections, there was a famous sting operation that brought down the Austrian government where the Austrian Freedom Party, which was part of the coalition with Sebastian Kurz, was exposed in a sting operation where they were essentially being offered money in Ibiza, or they were being offered money for their party, and they would get positive political coverage uh, if they were to send government contracts to someone purporting to be the, I think, niece of a, of a prominent Russian figure. And that brought down the Austrian government. But that, I think, demonstrated that, uh, I think, some broader concern that what, what don't we know that's happening in European politics? And is there, I think, um, uh, a broader effort on the part of European intelligence agencies and law enforcement to perhaps crack down and police their election space in a, in a bit more rigor than, than perhaps there was during the last decade. 
Yeah, I think I'm afraid it, you're, you're right. I mean, there's an awful lot that we don't know because Russia has so many imaginative ways to move money across the globe nowadays. I, yes, Le Pen was caught red-handed taking their loan uh, directly via Schaffhauser from the Russian bank. And then since then, they saw also sought more imaginative ways. But I think it really left them on the hook. I mean, Schaffhauser told me that, you know, he's boasting a bit. He said national rally wouldn't exist if it wasn't for me and the fact that I organized this loan that they were on the verge of bankruptcy. But that was done in a very open way. I mean, we don't know, uh, for instance, about how AFD is funded. We know, uh, for instance, there are concerns about Wirecard, for instance, the big German payments system that was basically exposed as a massive fraud. Uh, cooking its books with a 2 billion euro uh, hole in its accounts. You know, that's since been exposed now as a front for, you know, funding Russian intelligence operations. And we don't know, perhaps some of the money going through the massive wire card scam could be going to fund political parties. We just don't know. And, uh, you know, we've been trying to track this ourselves. But, you know, I think European law enforcement authorities face a very tricky time trying to follow this because, I mean, as you know, there are so many offshore schemes that can be used where identities are hidden. And also, I think, uh, you know, sort of one of the ways that can be used are also kind of basically cash schemes. You have cash couriers running driving around on motorbikes, basically handing over cash. And that's, of course, also impossible to trace. You know, as well, there were investigations into in here in the UK about uh, how Aaron Banks was giving his loan to the Brexit campaign in, in 2016. I think there had been some investigations, which I'm not sure ever went anywhere into his interests in diamonds in South Africa. Diamonds are also another way of funneling money in an untraceable way. Um, so I guess, yeah, I think it's a very big issue for European law enforcement. And I just, uh, I'm not really sure if they're equipped to deal with it. One of the things that your book, Poon's People, was, I think, so outstanding at is really looking at the, the Russian oligarch class and how they were oftentimes used by the Kremlin or vehicles for the Kremlin to pursue their interests. There's been a ton of effort over the last two years in sanctioning Russian oligarchs. London, it seems, has gone from being sort of the capital of Russian oligarchdom and in, in some ways has now become not a great place for prominent wealthy Russians. Do you think the eviction of oligarchs, while maybe not uh, having the strategic effect that many hope for of, of causing Putin to sort of soften or change his, his policy approaches, may have built up our resilience, reduced some of the Kremlin's levers of influence or efforts to vehicles to kind of influence European politics. Do you think that's had a, a substantial impact? Yeah, I think it had, because I think otherwise, if some of these Russian billionaires had not been sanctioned, they'd still be propagating uh, Kremlin propaganda or Kremlin soft power uh, strategies and, and so on. I mean, I think, you know, we wouldn't know who and they'd be free to lobby and free to sort of give money to whichever MPs they wanted to. And now, of course, they are tarred and no MP can be seen accepting money from them. So I think it's had an enormous impact. I mean, of course, they're going to seek ways around the sanctions. But I think, you know, the direct way in which they have interacted with kind of Western institutions and MPs in the past is, is now pretty much cut off for many of these guys. Like, uh, you know, of course, uh, people like Michael Friedman, Piotr Arvin, who spent decades 
building ties in the West. Of course, they deny close connections with the Kremlin. But we know that Pyotr Abin himself, in his interviews with Robert Mueller during the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections, admitted that he'd regularly meet with Putin and receive implicit instructions from him. And if they weren't carried out, there would be implications and consequences. So, you know, we know that these guys, basically, they have to follow a Kremlin agenda in order to hold on to their businesses. And for the Alpha Group guys, this is billions of dollars at stake. And they have spent a great deal of time and effort embedding themselves in Western societies and building reputations from which they can act as a, a voice box, essentially, for a Kremlin agenda. So I think it's it's made some things much harder, but of course, there are still gaps. I mean, look at uh, Raman Abramovich, for instance, another guy who has since become an official channel for the Kremlin, at least at the beginning of the war when he was acting as an envoy for Putin in the initial peace talks with the Ukrainians and still is acting now on some for the Kremlin on some of the prisoner exchanges. He's sanctioned in, in Europe and in the UK, but he's not sanctioned in the US, where we know from uh, some of the ICIJ investigations and the OCCRP investigations that he has billions and billions of dollars invested in the US through hedge funds and private equity funds and Nobody's watching where that money's going. Well, I guess uh, I'll have to now ask about the elephant, the inevitable elephant in the room, which is the forthcoming presidential election in the United States and the possibility of uh, Donald Trump to get re-elected. In your great book, uh, these people, you also, among other things, expose possible network connection of these uh, Russian uh, networks, funeral money, from a former Soviet Union, certain KGB networks, oligarch networks, into Donald Trump's empire. How much do we know about it? And uh, essentially, how, how worried shall we be, uh, given that there's a very real possibility that uh, Donald Trump may again become uh, the president of the United States? Will that provide Russians potentially more leverage going forward? Yeah, I think there's still an awful lot, unfortunately, that we don't know about the ways that Russia was uh, funneling money into the Trump organization. Yes, I tried to do some of this, and there's been a lot of public reporting uh, as well beyond my book about how the Trump organization was kind of uh, building close ties through Felix Sater and Bayrock Group, who were receiving a lot of their money and funding from Russian uh, operations. And also, we know that some of his biggest tenants were mafia guys from Russia and the connections themselves of Felix Sater and Fatofi Karif, you know, the, the guys who founded Bayrock Group who were building towers uh, for Trump, forming the basis of, of some of his main sources of income. They were building towers in New York, Miami and in Canada and elsewhere. So that link is clear. We still don't know. There's still a big gap in our understanding of what was going on in Deutsche Bank, um, why Deutsche Bank's private banking arm was giving all that money to Trump, even after, you know, he uh, reneged on paying back the commercial banking arm. And I think there should be still greater investigation of this. But it's almost as if, you know, in terms of Russian influence operations in the US, the damage is already done. 
and the roots are already very deeply embedded. And I'm not sure Russia really needs to do much more because, you know, we can already see very clearly that the US is heading towards a period of deep uh, internal political instability. And, you know, uh, Trump uh, very much looks like the number one candidate for Republicans, despite all the lawsuits and everything that's being thrown at him. And I think the seeds have already been sown. I think we might see Russian disinformation operations trying to provoke further unrest. But again, the Russia may be banking on instability in the US, basically undermining any further support for Ukraine or and basically undermining the US's own position in, in the world order going forward. But it's also a bit dangerous for Russia as well, because too much unpredictability can be a bad thing as well. And I think uh, that's what the U.S. administration actually very aptly used, right? They prepared by leaking intel that they had, for example, about Russia's preparations to uh, the invasion of 2022. They actually were able to uh, eliminate the advantage. Perhaps the last question, Catherine, this year in particular is a confluence of multiple elections in Europe and the United States. I actually estimate more than a dozen, right, including the EU parliament election, etc. Are there any maybe suggestions, maybe certain, you know, as a roadmap, what do we do to potentially enhance our resilience in the West, given how important this moment is, you know, for Ukraine support, and actually the fact that there is, this is going to be potentially a lot of points of vulnerability for the Kremlin to exploit. Yeah, that's a really tough question, of course. You know, I think main thing is is making sure that people are aware of the propaganda campaigns, the disinformation campaigns, and yes, trying to expose these channels of, of financing as much as possible. And I think, of course, it's, it's very important what's going on in Europe at the moment in trying to es- essentially kind of uh, find ways around the attempts of Viktor Orban, which is essentially the, the Kremlin's within the EU to block any further financing for Ukraine. And I think it's it's just important to bear in mind that essentially the West's credibility and its standing in the global order now is on the line. And basically, you know, we, we know that Putin has been taking aim liberal democracies for a long time now. And he basically himself said he was doing so in an interview with the FT, I think in 2019, when he said liberal democracies are now obsolete. And we hear this from many of his proxies and and these are the democracies that pose a danger to his own regime but i think unfortunately the west has got a lot to do to catch up because i think we have a tendency to be complacent a tendency to think that we can return to business as usual and how things were before the war um i think probably what is most important of all right now is to especially if we see the ukraine conflict is key to basically the underpinnings and and making sure that other uh, rogue states and hostile states aren't encouraged to further impunity and and don't believe that they too, if the West fails in Ukraine, that they can start attacking any country that they want. You know, we have to get our act together. I think we hear this now from from many voices that, um, you know, we need to turn around industrial production and, and be consistent. 
Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on on Russian Roulette. It's uh, been a real pleasure to have you, and we hope to have you back on our podcast soon. To all our listeners, uh, thank you again for tuning in. As always, if you haven't done so, please remember to subscribe to Russian Roulette and give us a positive rating, especially five stars. Additionally, be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Europhile, wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.